0: Welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and consultant to the dating app industry.
1: And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. We have spoken a lot on the podcast about the dangers that lurk
0: on dating apps. So today we're going to talk about why dating app operators don't do more to keep users safe. opportunity earlier this week to give a talk at Yale Law School on the topic of governance issues having to do with dating apps. And Michelle and I felt that we should really share some of that information with our listeners, some of the academic background, and also some of the things that I learned through my work consulting for the dating app industry about what do app operators think, why do they make decisions they make, and also how does the law influence all of that first a little bit of background about how I got started on this whole dating app law scholarship stuff. I wrote a law review article called Tinder Lies that was accepted for publication and ultimately published by the Wake Forest Law Review that dealt with the question of what it means to be dealing with so-called sexual fraud on the app. So if somebody lies about something very important about themselves, such as their marital status, and then has sex with somebody, under false pretenses, was there really consent? And if there wasn't, what might be some mechanisms that we could stop that behavior? And I basically proposed a framework involving small claims courts where people would be able to make claims without a lawyer involved and get at least some compensation for what happened to them, as well as provide some discouragement for perpetrators to keep doing that kind of so I posted this article, Tinder Lies, online to SSRN, this network where a lot of academics post their working papers, and lo and behold, I was contacted by the Washington Post, which asked me to write an op-ed about this topic, and that also led to some media interest in other countries, and I was on British television and Canadian radio and Irish radio, and all of that was really fun. And I realized that the, this issue of problems and dangers arising from dating apps struck a nerve with people. And I was able to get in touch with a lot more victims and somebody who worked in online safety at Match Group and uh, a lot of other interesting individuals. So this year we've seen stories like that of the Tinder swindler, who as you may recall, bamboozled women out of a total of millions of dollars. And also things like the story of Weston Caleb, who was an individual who engaged in more, shall we say mundane bad behavior, including allegedly sending non-consensual pornography in the form of a dick pic that the woman had not expressed any interest in. And he thought he would get away with all that, but a bunch of women found each other on social media, on TikTok, a bunch of women that have dated him and had been his victims, and they took it out on him and it went viral. So a lot of people, I think, especially this year, especially in 2022, are wondering... What is going on on dating apps and why are dating app operators not doing more to protect people? A couple of words of background, just some numbers that are useful to keep in mind, to understand the scale of the problem at this point in time, about one in six people have used dating apps and that use is rapidly going up, especially among young people. And at this point about one in three individuals meet their spouses on dating websites or apps. But a lot of people also lie on their profiles. Some surveys suggest that as many as 80% of people lie. Now, some of the time it's about not so important stuff. Michelle and I have talked about some of these things on the podcast. People lie about their height or something like that. But some of the time they do lie about their marital status or also about their criminal history or at least don't share a lot of relevant information. Some of these lies are easily discoverable once people meet in person, and others not so much. So why are people on dating apps in the first place? Uh, Some don't really know what they're doing. Some want friendship. They want to chat and we have a whole spectrum of romantic encounters, starting from hookups to casual dating to more long-term relationships, whether they're monogamous or polygamous, maybe ultimately even marriage. There are also people that are on the apps because they want to scam other people, whether it's financially, romantically or sexually, or they're on the apps to commit violence, unfortunately. Okay, let's look at the other side of this. Who's behind these dating apps? What do dating app operators want? What do the owners want? Well, first and foremost, they want to make money. How do they make money on these apps? This is important to understand. The business model is important to understand to figure out why they're doing things a certain way. They make money through advertising. Sometimes they sell user data. Users are not always completely aware of uh, how that's happening. And then there are a number of in-app purchases that people can make that might get them things like unlimited swiping, taking a look at who liked you so that you have a more limited pool to go through that you already know is interested in you you can get additional so-called super likes that are going to get you shown to users and they're going to be told that hey this person likes you and just other ways in which you can get pushed to the front of the stack so you get shown to more users and then you have more choices so this is If all goes well for the dating app operators, a very high volume operation, lots of people engaging in lots of interactions. Well, that gets both profits for the operators and can breed trouble for many users. Dating app operators want to sign up as many users as possible as easily as possible. So they want a fast and smooth onboarding process to make as much money as possible. People get frustrated when they sign up for an app, if it asks them for a whole bunch of information. However, having a high volume of people and this kind of unchecked onboarding means that unvetted potential predators get easy and rapid access to a lot of potential victims. And this is really where the problems come in because what happens as a result of all this? Some dating apps are going to be very financially successful. It's going to make high profits. Many users are actually quite happy or happy enough with dating apps. Like they feel like they meet the kinds of people they want for the kinds of interactions they want. Unfortunately, some of the users that are happy about getting what they're getting are the predators. They're getting what they want on there. And so they're happy to be making money or to do all sorts of bad things to people. Well, the victims, meanwhile, of all this, experience sometimes not just negative outcomes, but in fact, disastrous ones. And there are a number of different kinds of harms. And I've categorized them into a number of different buckets, right? You have dignitary harms, emotional ones. Reproductive ones at times, so maybe your biological clock runs out because you wasted six months on someone who engaged in dating fraud, physical harms and financial harms, right? So there these harms come from things like, I just mentioned dating fraud, but also sexual fraud that I talked about earlier, where people have sex under false pretenses, romance fraud, which are the economic scams where people often spend quite a bit more money than they wish they had. There are a number of health lies and emissions people engage in. Historically, that's had to do a lot with STDs. But today, COVID-related lies are another potential problem. So people lying about being vaccinated or about having taken a rapid test before the date, and so on. Then we have some of the most serious problems, which is the violence. So that can go from things like stalking to things like violations of consent in sexual matters, sexual assault, rape, and unfortunately, even things like murder. So then there are the sort of more gray area, sexual consent questions where there are either misunderstandings or things where people may be just did not try to elicit as much information as perhaps they should have. So maybe this doesn't legally meet the standard of sexual assault, but it's things that are still either unethical or problematic in some other way. Another type of harm comes from the uh, sending or distributing of non-consensual pornography. So that might be that people receive that they experience as violating, or it can be that somebody else had intimate images of oneself that they recorded either with or without consent, but definitely distributed without consent. And that is what we all know as revenge porn. And that has truly destroyed people's reputations and lives. And people have had to change their name and move to a different city and lost their job and all sorts of stuff like that. And then one last type of harm worth mentioning here is that there have been a number of data breaches or other forms of data sale. There was the big scandal involving Ashley Madison, the affairs website that was hacked or also the the sort of loss of data in, in a number of other ways. Okay, so now to get to the crux of the matter for today, why do app operators not protect their users more? A significant reason why is because they don't feel like they have to. And that's true on a number of different levels. So let me tell you a little bit, just a little bit, about the law. Some of you may have heard about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, also known as the CDA, which shields a number of different internet service providers, including dating app operators, from most misbehavior by their users. I'm going to give you just two examples of where that became relevant. One was that in 2013, out, out west, uh, a woman named Mary Kay Beckman sued Match.com. For negligence and deceptive trade practices, after a man named Wade Ridley that she met on there severely injured her while trying to murder her, and this case made it pretty high up in the federal appellate system. It made it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which, as you may be familiar, is sort of the the last uh, of court before you get to the U.S. Supreme Court, so it's very high up. And the Ninth Circuit stated that. Whether Match.com had actual knowledge of Ridley's violent background, which Beckman said that they did, there was no so-called special relationship between Match.com and Beckman. And because there was no special relationship, like employer-employee, things like that, Match.com did not have a legal duty to warn her. So she was out of luck when it came to suing Match give you another more recent example from out here on the east coast where we are in uh, 2019 the second circuit court of appeals so same thing as the the ninth circuit except out here on the east coast right Uh, last last court before the supreme court the second circuit held against an individual named matthew herrick when he sued grinder after a man that he met on grinder started this horrible campaign of stalking and harassment against him What did that individual do? He put up a profile pretending to be Herrick and he was impersonating Herrick to get men to show up at Herrick's door and demand violent and degrading sex, drugs, or both. And sometimes this was happening up to 16 times a day. So Herrick's life became a living hell. He kept complaining to Grinder, and he didn't feel like Grinder was doing much of anything. But guess what? The Second Circuit says under Section 230, Grindr has no responsibility to help stop the harassment. Another issue we run into is that there is no obligation on the part of the apps to conduct background checks. So. Some people actually tried to do something about that. Kamala Harris, remember her. She was not always vice president. She was once upon a time the California Attorney General. And she actually put pressure on Match Group starting in 2012 to get it to check its information, the information of its paid subscribers against state sex offender lists. And they did that for a while. But Match Group doesn't do that for its free apps such as Tinder or OKCupid because it says we don't collect enough user data to do so. Well, query whose fault is that, right? We also have a number of questionable data protection laws. So that's kind of another area of problems in the United States. Um, And so what happens as a result of the fact that legally there is not a lot these apps have to do in this context is that they don't do it in part because it costs them money. So if you're going to hire, for example, more individuals to take reports of violence That's going to cost money. You might also lose users the more you filter at the front end or while people are on the apps. And new apps often lack the funds to hire actual lawyers, and they face even greater pressure to increase their user base quickly and indiscriminately. So until recently, there was not really a lot of reason to do so until some media pressure started and some public pressure started. And so we have seen some developments as a result of that. So for example, ProPublica in the United States and ABC Australia launched a number of investigations that did get the public's attention and therefore got the dating app's attention where some changes were made. So for example, as a result of the ABC Australia investigation, Bumble Australia Changed one of its features because what was happening is that rapists were unmatching their victims after rape had taken place and that made it harder for victims to then go to the police and and proceed against them. So now when somebody unmatches you on Bumble in Australia, the person gets to keep the information on the other end until they themselves choose not to. So that's just one example. So some of the trends we've seen, right, are like there is some work being done when it comes to background checks. So Tinder earlier this year partnered up with an entity called Garbo to offer two free background checks to people and then also fairly cheap, a couple dollars a piece, background checks. Beyond that, not everybody is happy about this development, however, because some people are concerned that this is going to hit different groups in the population differently with inequitable consequences. So there is that. There's also been a fairly large scale introduction of photo verification tools, so where the app will say take a picture of yourself holding up three fingers, right? And then you'll get like a check mark that you're verified. However, however, one of the problems is that what some of these apps have let people do is that They have let them verify their pictures, but then when they change their pictures, they get to keep that verification check mark. And so people who are seeing those profiles are being lulled into this false sense of confidence because those pictures were actually not verified and could easily be ones that essentially result in catfishing. There have also been some resources that have been rolled out when it comes to safety guides and other resources on these apps, so like guides about how to report perpetrators, how to recover from abuse, et cetera. Some of these are useful. Some of this perhaps are a little bit more lip service. So what do we learn from all this? What are are some of the lessons that I see? For one, we have trade-offs between costs and safety. So yes, you could hire a professional matchmaker that's really going to vet people and do hardcore background checks and all that. But you might be paying as much as several thousand dollars per match, right? So that's one end of the extreme. And then you have these free apps that often do minimal to no vetting. So there's that. We also have very serious collective action problems, and let me give you an example of how those play out. So there is an app that is now defunct uh, that actually tried to do a better job checking people's backgrounds and providing more safety measures, et cetera, in response to the horrific things that happened, especially to women out there. So this app called Gatsby, its operator really put in an effort, got people to sign up. I actually got eighty thousand people to sign up for the app, so that's great. That's you know way out competing most dating apps out there that never make it to that point. But what was the problem? The problem was that more than ninety-five percent of the users that signed up were women. So you know uh, if you're a heterosexual dating app that's not gonna fly the men didn't feel like they needed to be there they were perfectly satisfied with the tinders and bumbles and ok cupids of the world and so this app went under because of this So what we also see is that we need to have continued advocacy by and for victims, but also from academics, from public policy organizations, politicians, and the media. And This is also part of our effort here with the podcast and part of what Michelle and I are doing here to raise awareness. There is also the question of whether we need to reform some of the data safety practices in the United States. Now, of course, that might raise costs also that get passed on to users, Uh, and last, We need to think about whether we need new laws against perpetrators or at least greater enforcement of uh, existing laws, including added resources and education toward law enforcement to prevent the rampant victim shaming that we unfortunately still see. So That's a lot of what I talked about at Yale on Monday and many, many other schools uh, in, uh, in the last couple of years. Michelle, any reactions to this?
1: Nope, nothing. No, I'm just kidding. I have a million (laughs) questions for you. (laughs) But look, I think the most obvious question, the one I'm like really dying to know the answer to after all of this. So I understand what you said about why the apps don't do more than they do to ensure safety because they don't have to. And if as a business and a publicly traded business, I believe for most of them, their responsibility is to their stakeholders to make sure that they are making money. And so if they're having to spend more money on safety measures, they are they're making less. So I do understand that, even though I think that stinks. Logically, it makes sense. But I guess my question is, so if they're not going to do more because they don't have to, then why don't they have to? Why are the laws not better around this? And I read your Washington Post op ed, and I remember in there you had said legislators have been wary of wading into this terrain, but you also made a great point about how the Me Too movement, Right, it, I'm quoting from your article, you said the hashtag Me Too movement rightly subjects all sorts of behaviors in the dating arena to greater questioning, and the legal boundaries in this context are up for fresh discussion. So shouldn't that be the case in this area too? And, and why isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think those are, you know, very important, uh, very important, very good questions. And, you know, I will tell you part of the problem is, first of all, people who have not experienced dating apps and have not experienced dating app related violence, harassment, etc. Do not take this seriously. They do not take the harm seriously. And, And I can tell you, I have... Presented sort of one tricky thing that happens is I've presented on this topic of of the sexual fraud stuff, and people tend to fall into one of two categories. Either they say, Well, the harms don't sound that serious to me, or they say something that basically results in one realizing that's what they're saying. Like if somebody And sometimes they also think if someone was dumb enough to sleep with someone who was actually married, then, you know, they get what they serve and also what's the big deal and, and they could take greater safety measures. So you've got that whole category of thinking. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which is when I propose things that i thought or hoped were were pragmatic like saying yeah you know what maybe we're not going to have a massive tort lawsuit involving lawyers etc maybe we're going to go to to small claims court maybe that's going to result in getting five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars because that's usually the maximum of what you can get in a in a jurisdiction small claim court why don't we just do that then people would say oh but i don't understand that's not consistent you've now told us these harms are so significant why shouldn't we have tort lawsuits so we don't like your proposal And somehow at the end of the day, we do nothing because we just end up doing nothing because we're like, oh, well, it's not this, it's not that, it's not a perfect solution. And so you have the minimizers and you have the the people who are sort of insisting on perfection, right? And then somehow everybody gets to wash their hands off the whole
1: thing. Mm. Yeah. And that first point you made is kind of along the lines, is more along the lines of what I was thinking, because I think it was really relevant to bring up the Me Too movement specifically because it gets at this idea of how a more patriarchal way of viewing things became the norm and things like harassing women was just to be tolerated because, as you said, if the people who are in charge don't understand how unpleasant or inappropriate something is because they haven't been on the receiving end of it, you know, they just don't have that first person experience as much, they underestimate the degree the scope of the problem and so i'm wondering is part of the problem here too that we live in a largely patriarchal society we live in a society that is run by white white males primarily cuz like when i heard this i also thought about in our world right in academia there are studies that have shown female academics are disproportionately adversely influenced in terms of their research productivity having been through the pandemic, because females are primarily the caregivers, um, not only in their own homes, but also in the university communities. Students are asking for more from them. Women are more likely to say yes to extra tasks. And as a result, they are now less productive in their research than their male counterparts. And similarly, I just read an article this week. I know there's been varying articles speaking to this idea over time. The one I read this week, I think, had to do with heart conditions in black women but it's whether it's heart conditions or other things our medical system here in america is also notorious for disproportionately not showing as quality health care and there's worse health care outcomes for black women in america yes. as compared to white women and as compared to men and so a common thread i'm seeing through each of these examples is when There's not greater diversity at the top in terms of who's in charge, in terms of who's determining what are these significant issues. If it's mostly just white men, are we then having laws that really continue to perpetuate what works well for white men? Do you think that's a part of it?
0: That's so much to be said about this, Michelle. I mean, for one, yeah, I agree with basically everything you said. However... Uh I think it's it goes even it goes even beyond that. Um I, I think this is definitely part of it. Definitely and, and... Uh, we see, I mean, you know, you look at what's happening now with long COVID, because it's perceived as like a women's disease, that it gets dismissed as being something that must be in your head. And then there is this intersectional element where if we look at childbirth, which tends to be women, right, we see how black women get treated a lot worse than, than white women with sometimes horrific outcomes. And I think some of that has become More public with Serena Williams being Mm -hmm. uh, open about what happened to her. And even with all her fame and all her resources, how she had to fight for her life. So there's, but here's the part where I'm saying it's going further. We see so many situations where even having, let's say women at the top does not really move the needle. And that they embrace those same values that they feel like, well, either they feel like I made it in this world, so, you know, someone else can sort of fend for themselves, or they see it just from the, from a narrow minded business perspective, because if you think about let's say you're a university president and you have women complaining about what you just said, like the the productivity losses in the scholarly arena which are which are real it is it's very clear that women took on a disproportionate caretaking role there that you know you look at it from a business perspective, I don't know, do I want to give all these women extra leave now? do I wanna, right, and all of a sudden it becomes like a, a dollar proposition and it becomes very comfortable to just stick with the status quo. And I also think, unfortunately, some of this goes toward how we have adopted more and more of this customer satisfaction perspective of academia. Now, let me be clear. There are academics who are abusive towards students, and that's not acceptable. And that's not what we're talking about here. But when essentially, the university becomes subject to the equivalent of Yelp reviews with all of the biases, all that. Look, we know, I'll give you an example, because this is something I I hosted an event about earlier this year, uh, as you may recall, with Northwestern University, that, that we had a panel about empirical problems and bias problems in teaching evaluations. There are so many people who know They know what that research says. They know what it says about women and minorities, but they don't want to draw the proper conclusions. Why? Because they don't want to make the customer unhappy. And the customer is the student and the customer wants to be able to say whatever it is the customer wants to be able to say. And and this is why I think some of these problems are intractable. and, And unfortunately, in some of these situations, change is likely to come through lawsuits, or through PR scandals, or both.
1: Okay, yeah, I'm definitely interested in this idea of how is change likely to come and following following through on some specific things we can do there, but also what you said about even when women are at the top of the company, so that reminded me of a frustrating story I can share. So I was on, when I was on the apps, I was on The League at one point in time, which is um, like supposed to be this super exclusive app. Once again, though... You know, if what the point you were making earlier about these apps, it sounds like they primarily are making their money more from advertising or from selling your data than they are from the user fees, anyway. And a lot of the times, apps like that one, I did not have to pay a fee to join that one. People do, but you also could get in if you, I guess, meet some of their criteria, I think, and you're a woman for free. And so, you know, it's one of those things where they always say, if you're not paying, you're the product. And with apps, sometimes I guess it's, if you're not paying the big bucks, then you're still the product. But I had matched with this one guy and I don't even remember what all had happened, but I decided to unmatch with him. Well, I get a notification And I pulled this off. I saved this screenshot because I sent it to them for feedback. Now, The League was founded by a woman, and she was their CEO at this time. I understand The League was somewhat recently sold, so I don't know that she's still managing it, but she was at the time that I did this. And it even said she had founded The League because she was dissatisfied with what she was seeing on the other apps and thought it would be helpful to have a woman in charge. Well, here's all the good that did. It said, your old match X. Just use their league tickets to rematch you. So paid members, because they're paying, can choose to rematch with somebody who has closed the match. Not only did they tell me that, they said, yes, go ahead and brush those shoulders off, you hot cookie. Then they said, since they spent the tickets to rematch, the least you can do is send over a great reopener." And I just thought that was so disgusting. I wrote them back and I said, I said this feature could use some work. I get the value of it for the person who has chosen to, to close the match. I think I had meant for the person who hadn't chosen to close the match, the person who wanted to reopen it. But it feels like harassment in the opposite scenario. So in my case, I closed the match because as a competent and capable person who knows what I want, I was done with that match. That you allow him a feature to override my decision is very troublesome. And then I said, for you to tell me congratulations on it is equally as troubling. Believe women when they tell you what they do and don't want. and Don't congratulate them on you colluding and overriding their decisions. And then I quoted their whole, and since he spent the ticket, the least I can do is talk to him. I just said, please understand how inappropriate you sound. And it was just such a shame to see that behavior that's the official response from the app and that was an app that was founded by women. So that's you know, that's really awful. That is yeah. awful. Yeah. I love your
0: response.
1: I Thanks. mean, that is just wow but uh, did they do anything about it no i didn't get that vibe at all from the response yeah. you know which was more just a canned we've taken your considerate your feedback into consideration you know nothing yeah. to suggest they're even going to do anything about it so it was totally disgusting um but you know it reminded me of what you were saying this is a obviously much less extreme version what you said about that grinder case that you had brought up so um harassment that can occur which i think what my example was a very mild form of harassment, but it was advocated for, colluded with by the app itself. And so I wonder what about the cases that have made it to court or do, do any make it to court? If they do, is it more of those clear cut harassment cases? Because I know your article talked a lot about when sexual relationship is involved, deception that occurs on the app, that leads to people deciding to have sex with you under false pretenses. But what if it's not sex? What if it is harassing behavior? When are these lawsuits ever successful?
0: Well, it depends. First of all, it depends against whom, right? Because so uh, the the stuff I was telling you about with Matthew Herrick and Grinder, he really wanted to go after Grinder. If right? you really wanted to go after the app. And of course, the apps tend to be the ones with more money, tend to be the ones with more power to actually make some of that behavior stop. And there, the app itself, it's not just that he met the guy on the app, the app itself was being used as a tool of harassment. And even that was not enough. The, the stuff I was talking about in the sexual fraud context was more about the user himself. So sexual fraud has an interesting history in the United States. And is also tied to questions having to do with, for example, lies about contraception. And one of the few cases, cause you asked me what's been successful. So one of the few cases that's been successful in that context is the following. Let me first say what's not been successful. So most of the time when somebody says, this person lied to me and said they're on birth control and you know now I have to pay child support or whatever, like that has not tended to be successful even if it was established that it was indeed a lie and and all of that stuff. One case where it was successful is somebody had lied about having had a vasectomy, the woman got pregnant and it was an ectopic pregnancy that resulted in a medical disaster that the person ended up having to like an ovary removed, like where there was this very significant physical damage beyond just the damage that a pregnancy arguably causes. And so you, what you see here is, is this kind of norm in the courts where courts in the United States have been very reluctant, for example, to view a pregnancy and a baby as a harm. They do not like to do that. However, Oh, the woman's reproductive system was damaged and now she might not be able to have children. Well, that's a different story. Right. And Mm then, then, so we are, look, we are seeing at least some change when it comes to, to stealthing, which is also a big problem, right? Where people, whatever, poke holes into a condom or, uh, or remove a condom during sex, right? All of that without consent. And, this is something where we're starting to see more kind of criminal bills being introduced uh, in various states and and being adopted, uh, because and if you ask me, I mean, this isn't even a debate. Like it's freaking sexual assault, and, and that's it, of some version thereof. Like the fact that this is even a a debate is absolutely ridiculous. So, but this is where we are. Right. And so now imagine things like like what we're talking about with, you know, with lies about material attributes when it comes to the decision to have sex with someone. We're way not there. We're way not there because we're not even willing to do stuff about much worse things. And historically, if you look back, there used to be lawsuits uh, that generally women or their fathers could launch against men who had sex with a young woman, right, took her virginity under the pretense that we're going to get married. And so ultimately, along the years uh, in the 20th century, these laws were abolished in part because feminists were starting to find these laws offensive. And these so-called anti-hard bomb statutes were passed, where what had previously been these hard bomb laws related to comforting the person that's, that's lost their virginity or rather comforting their father. That's now lost the property interest because that's really the way this was looked at. So, so uh, that these were, these were seen as sort of like rightfully seen as, as essentially misogynistic patriarchal. But the problem is we sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater where this became an excuse where judges today will say the fact that these anti-heart bomb statutes were passed means that none of these lies matter anymore. And that you know women are strong, and they're big people, and they can fend for themselves. And it would be anti-feminist, it would be anti-feminist, essentially, to allow a lawsuit for something like this. And look, I just disagree.
1: Yeah, wow. That is quite the little twist of logic there to, to uphold a system that actually tends to harm rather than help mm-hmm. in that case. I have one more law related question for you, I think, which is, so these cases that you have mentioned today, were those criminal cases or were those civil cases?
0: Those were civil cases. Those are civil cases going after the app operators for, you know, for money, right? For making, I mean, criminal, forget it. You'd get even, even less than zero, right? Like, so it's like, even in the civil, like, let me give you an analogy, which I think is interesting here. So my main area of scholarship historically has been intellectual property. And when we're dealing with things like copyright infringement, for example, if you're YouTube and I see that there is an infringing video, like something that infringes on my copyright, I can contact you and say, Hey, there's this video and then there's a process, right? But this is known as a notice and takedown regime. Once I've given you notice, you have responsibility by taking certain steps, to take down material that is infringing. And you know that's something I think we should think about when it comes to, let's say, people with a criminal record who are on these apps, especially when it comes to a criminal record related to sexual assault or things like that, that if somebody comes up to you, fine, maybe you don't have an obligation to dig through the records, but if somebody comes up to you and says, this person committed rape, here is the record, yada yada here's the whatever paper trail why shouldn't the app be obligated at that point to take down that user so i think those are the kinds of questions that if people actually knew about like thought about would really not sit well with most of the population but you know right now we have so many problems politically in this country that especially at the federal level it's hard to do anything at the local level we've seen some things like Oklahoma, a number of years ago, passed an anti-catfishing bill. However, only the person that is being impersonated can move forward legally, whereas why not add the third-party victim to that? So I think there are sort of common sense things we could do at the state level that would be very, very helpful, even if it's going to take a while to make
1: changes at the federal level. Okay, so I can appreciate what you're from what you're saying that changes that require laws being changed are are going to be slow if they're going to happen at all and so it does sound like i mean we should we should still push for them because that's important mm-hmm. but in the meantime until that happens i do think we need to talk about what more we do but before we do that i've got one more question for you because i think it relates to that which is essentially why are people such liars in the first place in your article you had cited a statistic from some prior research that said 80% of people lie on their profiles. Like, why is that so high? Do you know, or do you know what prior research might say about, is that a similar degree to which people would lie in other non-dating circumstances? Or are people much more likely to lie on dating profiles? I'm sure some of it has to do with we as people. It's kind of human nature to get away with as much as you think you can. And so the anonymity, the relative anonymity of dating apps, I'm sure contributes to that. But beyond that, is it just, there's just not enough incentive to tell the truth? What do you make of why those stats are so high? A couple of things.
0: I mean, again, very good question, right? I think one thing that's interesting, I've not looked into this, but there might be research on this, is to look at whether people are more likely to lie in a job application process or in a dating app process. My hunch is that they're more likely to lie on dating apps just because the numbers are so high with the dating apps. I find it hard to believe that they'd be (laughs) even higher with job applications. And also there, the consequences are more serious. Like if you lie about a degree that it turns out you don't have, there might be a verification process where you're going to get in trouble. But part of what we're seeing. So there's a, a law professor named uh, Jill Hasday at the University of Minnesota who has written a book about intimate deception and the law, and she terms um, one form of deception linchpin deception. So that's the kind of lie where you think that if you get if you kind of can rope in the person, if the truth comes out later, they will forgive you or or it, maybe it won't matter. Right? So in the case of dating apps, if all you want is to hook up with people, maybe the person on the other end will never even have time to discover like, oh, you're not actually a surgeon or you are married or whatever. Right? So there is that, or if you're pursuing something more long-term you think like, well, yeah, like I do want a long-term affair or whatever it is. Uh, but the person will forgive me once they find out the truth. And you know, the thing is sometimes they're right. Sometimes people do forgive them and that's part of the problem. So because so many people forgive so many other people, and and once it becomes seen as socially acceptable to lie a little bit, it's like, you know, in for a penny in for a pound, All of a sudden we have this slippery slope which is why i don't like any lies or obfuscations on these apps at all like if, if someone's like oh i just lied by a couple of years with my age," no just don't do it and it also in a way excuses the behavior of the other person if they then do it to you in turn like i just don't like that entire can of worms but i think at the end of the day most people are and this is not the cynic in me most people are fundamentally selfish they're gonna, you know, they want what they want. They think I can't get this thing, if I'm honest. Some of them, when it comes to the marital status, some of them also want to slide from relationship to relationship. So they want to have a backup option if they were to get divorced, so their affair partner can already be their next relationship. But but most of the time, it, it's just gonna be like, hookups and no consequences. And, and part of it is also, are we actually willing to impose social consequences on our friends and coworkers who lie. So if somebody told you, Michelle, I lied on a dating app, what exactly would happen to them? Or would you just be like, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that, but frankly, you would move on. You'd still be friends with them. Like, at what point do we pull the plug on people who do that kind of?
1: See, I think that's a really great question for what what can we do about it? Because gosh, what you just said, like, so with applying for jobs, if you lie and your lies negatively impact a company there are significant punishments for that but if your lies only hurt people whatever it's on them for being foolish enough to believe you in the first place the companies are the real victims you know so that's so frustrating to hear but i think it really does drive home the point that as people, we need to look out for ourselves. If, if the legislatures aren't going to, we don't have the power backing that companies have. So as you said, maybe we do need to impose better social consequences is making an app less anonymous, a good way to do that. So that at least if somebody or your profile on an app less anonymous, is that a good way? Because the person can't assume anonymity anymore. They, For all they know, somebody could trace it to their personal lives, cause problems for them by just knowing who they really are. So that makes me think about the apps that allow for photo verification tools. If just doing that makes people less anonymous and in turn makes them less likely to engage in bad behavior. Do you know anything about that? If if part of the problem is we need to hold people who are displaying these bad behaviors on the apps to more social consequences, we we'd be more able to do that if we know who these people are, if we could call them out in a way that people in their actual lives may know what's happening. And so... One way, and I guess this does still come back to the apps, but one way that could help with that is if there is a way to verify that these people are who they say they are. Now, that's just one way that people can be harmful on the apps. Somebody who says who is who they say they are can still engage in other bad behaviors. But at least if we can identify who this person is and they know that we can, does that make it less likely that they'd be tempted to engage in bad behavior because they know it could come back to them because they know they're not anonymous. And if I think about what are ways that that could be enforced, I think about those photo verification features where somebody's a verified user, if they have sent in their photo and it's been determined that's who they really say they are, that may be one way to make them less anonymous, if that's the case. And maybe with photo verification features specifically, but also maybe broad, more broadly, just talking about where anonymity is reduced, do we see better behavior? What do you know about that? Is that true? If, if people are less able to be anonymous, do we see better behavior out of them?
0: You know, I'm not sure we have as much data on that as we would like, but we do know, I mean, we know it to be true in general. Right, and, and some yeah. of that is also common sense, right? That like when people know they're being watched, or, or that there's going to be a social consequence, they behave differently. And you think about it, the entire prisoner's dilemma is built around that kind of thing, right? Like where if you know you're a repeat player uh, and you're going to have to deal with the same people again, as opposed to if it's a one-time thing. I mean, all these things play into the same, play into the same thing. And I, you know, I, I think one thing legally we could do is we could impose obligations on dating apps to collect more data maybe they don't make it public or whatever but let's say they have to have a picture of someone's id or someone's credit card or whatever it is there are problems with that too you know what about people we might not want to hurt that way? What about undocumented individuals or you know, other groups where we're worried? We're also worried because we know there have been these data breaches. So that would have to be coupled with better protection for data right? if we're going to do that. So it's more complex, but it's, it's not impossible. Just something to think about.
1: And maybe um, that's why it's not happening so much already, because yeah. again, it's, there's going to be costs associated yep. with it. And as you said, mm-hmm. it's more complex.
0: It's more complex, creates more friction during the sign-up process, right? Um, And so it's not going to... But I do think people behave clearly behave worse online, again, because they don't think anything will happen to them. But here's the thing that really bothers me. that And I was getting into that a little bit earlier already. I really think that, (laughs) not to pound my fist on the table here, but as a nation, and perhaps also internationally, we are facing a real crisis of accountability. And so... Let, let me give you an example of a recent study that came out that's not about dating, but it's just shockingly awful. So 40-some percent of people admit to having essentially messed around with COVID protocols. So in the sense of if there was a mandate that they didn't like follow the mandate, or, and this was the, the sort of perhaps most shocking part, they admitted in this study to uh lying sorry, family members and friends about their precautions so that might mean i was mentioning this earlier in the context of dating but it might mean lying about whether they're vaccinated lying about what they had been up to before lying about whether they're masking lying about whether they rapid tested and i have heard anecdotally stories about people you know talking to students and like their sibling lied to them like their brother or their sister lied to them before coming to stay with them. It's like, forget being respectful to strangers. People are literally willing I mean, this one, I don't know the people personally, but I just saw mention on Twitter that some people didn't mention to grandpa that the family knew they had COVID and grandpa came over and died, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- when we're dealing with that kind of stuff, like apparently the anonymity is far from our only problem people are just willing to do anything i i don't i mean i don't even know you tell me as the psychologist and the therapist what is happening
1: yeah so i mean from a psychological perspective where i can go with that is back to freud and i'm sure there are other other psychological theories this could be rooted in as well but this idea of ego this idea that we must protect ourselves at all costs and Honestly, it's bringing me back to, as some of our listeners may know, I've mentioned this before, but I take notes while we're talking of things that I'm like, wow, that really stood out to me. And to something you said earlier, which is, I can't get this thing if I'm honest. So, this sense of, I'm much more concerned, as you said, with with myself, the selfishness, protecting of the self and protecting of self interests even if it means harm to other people that I don't have to think too hard about. And I don't know, maybe even if you do think hard about it, but just this idea of how fundamentally we as people are bent on protecting ourselves. And if we bring in what I want, under the umbrella of protecting ourselves, which I would argue it doesn't necessarily belong there, but if people can make that case for everything I want counts as self-protection, I guess that's how they justify it from a psychological perspective. But I think, I can't get this thing if I'm honest, really encapsulates why, and you and I both agree on this, but why we have given our opinion to listeners before that lying of any type on dating apps should be looked at with significant concern, even if it's a small lie, because that same idea underlies it. The idea that I can't get this thing if I'm honest, meaning I don't think you would want me if I were telling the truth about who I am, which which means I don't think you would want me. So they're saying they're perfectly okay with saying whatever to you to justify them getting what they want, whether it's a small lie now but it's the same mentality behind it that could lead to a big lie later on. And, and I, I do think that at least underscores why our listeners should be wary of liars of any type, because that same idea underscores any type of lie.
0: You know, I think, I think this is all very valuable insight. And, and it brings us to, you know, things we're not going to resolve today, but just to, to flag it, it brings us really to the philosophical level of why should you do the right thing? Why should you ever do the right thing, especially for people? And I'm not saying religious people behave better than non-religious people in this pandemic. I don't think we have any indication that that's the case, but at least when someone is religious, like they, if they have the version of religion where they think God is watching them, right? Like Presumably that provides some kind of moral framework. But when it comes to people who think, okay, there's not going to be a consequence from God. There's not going to be, and by the way, I'm not religious. Okay. So I am saying it from the perspective of someone who's not religious, but if there's no God, society's not going to do anything to me. People are not going to judge me. Apparently killing off grandpa doesn't bother me as much as this other thing I was doing or whatever. I mean, and this isn't even getting into the people who are just complete COVID denialists and all of that stuff. Like we're talking about people have some sort of like sense of whatever things and science, if really the short term is more important to you than the long term. If you are essentially a toddler psyche in a grown body, then so to speak, like God help us all, right? Because I don't, I don't know how we live in a society like that. And I think it's part of why we're seeing some of the breakdown that we're seeing around us. And the problems are so fundamental and the restructuring that needs to happen is so fundamental. And one thing I would say to those people is, do you really feel comfortable with this? Do you really like when you look in the mirror or you go to sleep at night, like, or do you want to think about like on your deathbed? is this really what you want to live with? And I really, I, I mean that I really hope we can reach some people that way to just sort of sit down and think right before doing these things and, and think about how they're going to feel afterwards. And you know, that it's just not, maybe it's not who you want to be. And it's never too late to change. You know, maybe you did this stuff and maybe you did lie to people and maybe you did lie to people on dating apps and and maybe you did have affairs and maybe you did all sorts of stuff, but it is never too late to change. You don't have to think I'm just that kind of person now. And, and and I'm just going to, figuratively or literally going to rot in hell at this point. Anyway, you know what? Doing less harm is
1: always worthwhile.
0: If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. You can become a part of our community by joining us strangers on the internet facebook group or following us at swipe strangers on twitter or on instagram i would like to thank my husband carlos farini for sound editing as well as Vlad vodkui for permission to use his music for this podcast